Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Here's how vain and superficial I was. When I got out of my vehicle, I didn't go check on the car that I had just hit or the people and how they were doing. I immediately began to assess the damage on my car. That was Martin Lockett. And the initial reaction you just heard happened after an intoxicated 24-year-old Martin stepped on the gas from behind the wheel of his vehicle in order to make a yellow light, which he didn't, and crashed into another vehicle, instantly killing two people and permanently injuring a third. So at that point, I am promptly placed under arrest and put into the back of the cruiser, and we head for downtown for processing. And I drive past my parents' block, and I knew that I would not see that house again for about 20 years. In total, Martin did 17 and a half years behind bars for his crime. Those are the facts. And if all you knew were the facts, you wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface of this astonishing story. Up ahead on the show, is prison time enough to atone for one's mistakes? And what is the role of restorative justice in healing? We'll also talk about identity, the painful lifelong psychological impact of growing up economically disadvantaged, and the importance of having a vision for your life no matter how far, of course, you think you have wandered. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a one-for-one podcast. Welcome to the All The Wiser podcast, where we share jaw-dropping stories of extreme adversity and the inspiring wisdom that comes on the other side of pain. We also donate $2,000 an episode to charity and celebration of our incredible guest. I'm your host, Kimmy Culp. And before we get started, I have some exciting news. All The Wiser and our team have been nominated for a Webby Award. What is a Webby Award? Well, the Webby Awards are an international award competition that celebrates the best of the internet. There are millions of content creators out there, and we are beyond honored and humbled to be recognized for best podcast interview for our episode with Rebecca Bender on sex trafficking. Being nominated for best podcast interview means that we are one of five contenders and winning is a whole other thing. And you can play a part in that. 
The Webbies has the Webbies People's Voice or People's Choice, which means anyone can vote to help see their favorite show to the finish line. We try not to ask too much of you on the show, with the exception of, of course, rating and reviewing, but this is a time where we would love to see our audience come together. Our whole team at All The Wiser is so talented and passionate about this show. We are in the company and competing with some shows that are part of big networks with big budgets. This year's Webby Awards, we are playing in the big leagues and we need our people and our community to come together in support of us. So it's really simple. Click the link to the Webby Awards voting site at the bottom of this episode page. Once you click, you'll listen to my very excited voice and then you will have to register. It takes literally two seconds and then you cast your vote. Super simple. If it's easier, you can head on over to Instagram and the link to vote is in our bio at All The Wiser Podcast. So either place, just scroll down the show notes, click Webby Awards, vote there. Or if you're on Instagram, click on our bio link and you can vote for the Webbies there. Thank you guys so much and a huge congratulations to all of the other 2022 Webby Award nominees. Being an online content creator is not for the faint of heart. It requires you to put yourself out there over and over again. And we continue to do it because we love what we do and we believe in the show and the stories we share. So thank you for being a part of that. And we will keep you posted as we keep our fingers crossed. And now on to today's episode. We were first introduced to Martin through the charity he works for, Lines for Life. And when I got on the phone to meet him and explore whether he would make a potential good fit and good guest on All The Wiser, I was completely blown away. I found him to be incredibly warm and so clear on his passion and mission in life, and both on his past story, but the, the future he was creating for himself and a willingness to be incredibly vulnerable and sharing his whole story and all of it, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, the warts and all in the service of others. I think that Drinking and driving is something, unfortunately, that probably most of us can relate to. We've either been in the car with somebody after they've had a few drinks or we've gotten behind the wheel after we've, you know, had a drink or two. And Martin also wisely reminded me that it is not just drinking and driving, it is texting and being distracted. And these are things that ultimately can take the lives of other human beings. In Martin's case, two lives were lost and another changed forever. Martin also reminded me about the simple notion and incredible power of doing what you say you're going to do. And that is exactly what he has done with his life to honor the legacy of his victims. So I think this is one that's worth listening with your kids. Even in a world of Uber and Lyft, every day, 28 people in the U.S. die from drunk driving. And that's around 10,000 preventable deaths a year. I hope you are inspired by Martin's courage and his commitment. And now I bring you the wisdom of my new friend and a gifted storyteller, Martin Lockett.
Hello, Martin, and welcome to All The Wiser. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here, Kimmy. Martin, how would you introduce yourself to our listeners? I would say that I'm a 42-year-old man who has spent literally half of his life incarcerated. I am a substance abuse counselor. I am an author, and I am a staunch advocate for reducing the amount of DUI fatalities on our roads. And Martin, I want to start with the backdrop of your childhood and growing up. I know you grew up in the Portland area. So tell me a little bit about Martin as a boy and your experience growing up. Right. So I did grow up in Northeast Portland in the 80s, and it was a very impoverished, crime-ridden neighborhood. However, I grew up with both mom and dad in the household, and so I was very fortunate in that regard. And my dad worked a blue-collar job to support the family, and mom stayed home to take care of us kids. They had us involved in everything you can imagine, from Little League to Cub Scouts and other activities. My dad would take my brother and I, I have a twin brother, in fact, and he would take us every year to chop down Christmas trees at Christmas time, and we would bring them home for the family to decorate. Again, he was not just signing us up for sporting events, but he was our assistant coach. He would uh, stay the two hours of practice that we would be there. So he was very, very active. And life was life was pretty typical, I would think, for a working-class family at that time. When I got into high school, however, things began to change because I'm looking to get more independence and, you know, feel my way out in the world, so to speak. And that was when I started to hang out with some of the kids that grew up in my neighborhood. And we got into a lot of mischief, if you will, in those years. So as you said, despite having really loving, engaged parents, and I love how fondly you always talk about your parents, things started to go south for you in high school. And I've heard you say about the process of feeling the pain and understanding where the pain is coming from. So talk to me about when things start to change in your life and and where you think sort of the origin of that pain and suffering was rooted in. Sure. So when I got to high school, as I mentioned, I was pretty shy growing up. And so you get to high school and of course it's, it's you know, paramount that you find a peer group and you bond with and you feel that you belong to a group outside of your family group. So let me back up just a few years and I'll say that, so when I was going to Cub Scout meetings and things like that, they would always take place in a middle-class white neighborhood, which was staunchly different from the way that I grew up. And so literally 15 minutes away, it was a completely new world. It was manicured lawns and there was no trash on the street and you know everything was clean and fresh and, and it, it was just, vastly different from the the neighborhood that I grew up in. And so this kind of embedded in my 10 or 11-year-old brain that all white people must live like this and all black people live the way that I live. And why is that the case? And of course, you know, such complex questions you can't you can't try to answer at that age, but it instilled in me that there must be something inherently wrong with me that I have to be confined to living this way and my classmates and and other people that I had interaction with 
on some basis, lived in a completely different world. And so that was kind of the origin of my, you know, lack of a healthy self-concept and self-esteem issues and identity issues, frankly. And if you can juxtapose, and you've written beautifully about going to the Boy Scout meeting in the white neighborhoods and, mm-hmm. and suburbs. So juxtapose, you've illustrated what that experience, what was the environment in the quote unquote, you know, hood, which was where you were growing up. That was your neighborhood. Certainly. So inside my house was love and warmth and, and all the family things that we hold near and dear. When I walked outside, however, there were gunshots. There were needles on the street. There were prostitutes, you know, going up and down the street all day and night. There were people's homes being broken into. I mean, any and every crime you can imagine took place literally right outside my front door. You know, it was it was nothing to hear gunshots ringing out at 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning and police sirens. I mean, it was, I mean, you would count it a blessing if you could get through a night without hearing police sirens, honestly. And so it was a war zone. It was it was at the height of the, the crack epidemic. And, you know, there was gangs and battles for territory where they would sell drugs. It was horrific. And so I think, honestly, Kimmy, I think that's why my parents were so adamant about us being engaged and involved in these extracurricular activities to keep us from the influences of the street. But meanwhile, I get it. So you have these really engaged parents who are showing you these other neighborhoods and experiences, but now you're seeing what your experience, you know, how it could be different and how other people are living and and the huge disparity there. Exactly. No, you're, you're very right. And, and when I saw that other life that was free of chaos and crime and drugs and all these terrible things, I aspired to that. I mean, I wanted that. I needed that for my life. And honestly, I felt that I was deserving of that. But it was not within reach for me because no one I looked like, quite frankly, lived in those neighborhoods or drove those cars or their parents didn't work, you know, in some building downtown, right? They worked where my dad worked at the shipyard or at Freightliner doing some manual labor job. And it's certainly not to demean anybody who does manual labor by all means, but it conveyed to me that this lot in life is for me and other people get a different lot in life. Yeah, so that's that is makes sense that that is what is seared in in that young brain. Mhm. Yeah. Absolutely. But and this knowing that you do deserve more and are made for more and want more. Well, exactly, and so that was the conflict for me. And so getting back into those early high school years, and looking to fit in and to belong. And I gravitated toward, again, guys who lived in my neighborhood that I actually never met because I think my parents did what they could to shield us from them. But at that point, I would do anything to be accepted and to gain some type of praise or, or, or just acceptance and belonging, honestly. And so with that came drinking and smoking marijuana and skipping a class here and there which eventually led to stealing cars Uh, at the age of 15, 16 years old, began to steal cars and find myself in juvenile detention hall and being put on probation and, you know, kind of going down that terrible path that some of us take when we're trying to find our way. And you had talked earlier about your mom and that your mom was an artist. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and that you were an artist and you found that passion as you were growing up and art really became a sanctuary where you could feel truly yourself. But the other place you can feel truly yourself, you said, was alcohol. So I do want to introduce when alcohol arrives into your life and the role it plays in these teenage years where things are starting to change for you. Right. So a cousin of mine had come to live with us between eighth and ninth grade. And we all looked up to him like he was a deity. I mean, he was he was everything. He was only one year older than us, but he was so popular with the girls and with guys, frankly, and everybody loved him and respected him and feared him because he was a gang member. And so we aspired to be like him. And so with that, he had taken us to a party one day and of course there's alcohol and and he handed us some beers and we kind of looked at each other. My brother and I looked at each other thinking, we can't drink this. We, you know, we weren't raised this way. Mom and dad would kill us if they, if they knew we were going to be drinking. But to be accepted with, with this group and his peers, oh, absolutely. You know, we would do anything for that acceptance. And so initially it was to fit in. And it was also, for me, it was a social lubricant because it allowed me to finally come out of this shy, awkward shell and to open up and be more sociable. And I mean, I hadn't had a girlfriend at that time or by that time I hadn't even had a girlfriend. And so I'm thinking if I'm ever going to start, you know, dating girls, I better learn how to talk to them first. And so this alcohol, you know, seems to do the trick. And so it was my best friend, to be quite honest, Kimmy. I relied on it to live a totally different life and, and to not have fear and, and to not be shy and timid. And uh, I loved it, quite frankly. Got it. And tell me, and, and then I want to go into more detail about what this chapter in your life looked like when mm-hmm. you, you know, begin using and hanging out with these kids. But tell me about art and the, and the role, just because I was intrigued personally of wanting to learn more about you know, what type of art and what art meant to you during those years? Sure. So I was a mama's boy and my mom was a tremendous artist. I seen some of her work when I was six or seven years old and I just marveled at it. It looked like it could be hanging in a gallery somewhere. And she did a lot of still life, uh, you know, plants and, and trees and things like that. And so I wanted to be like her. And so she would sit me down. She would buy me art books that shows you literally from, from, from A to Z how to draw anything. And so that's when it began for me. And I, I, I felt very much at home and at peace with that. And I got, I got good. I got pretty good. And so by the time I got to high school, I was in standard art for the first year. But then the following three years, I was in advanced art and I was able to put some of that uh, artwork on display at school and, and, and the teachers and my advanced art teacher, he said, you really have a gift here. This is something incredible. I do this every day and you've done some of the most spectacular art that I've seen. And, and I believed it. I don't know if he was just trying to, you know, stroke a kid's ego, but he, he certainly made me believe in myself and, and my artistic ability. And so it was, it was a side of me, however, that it wasn't important enough for me to continue if it meant that I couldn't be with my friends and do the things that I was doing to gain their acceptance. 
And how are things unfolding in your life at this time as far as, you know, using and, you know, what is your, the reality of of this chapter of your life? What does it look like? Right. So freshman year, I had gotten behind uh, pretty drastically because I started skipping more and more classes with my friends, again, stealing cars, going to jail. You know, there wasn't a ton of, of reprimand at home because my dad, he was very passive. You know, he took care of the family, but mom was a disciplinarian, but mom's health started to deteriorate. So she couldn't assert herself as much as she could maybe 10 years prior. And so at that point, it was pretty much me doing whatever I wanted to do. And so the drinking started to escalate when I was about 15 years old, because, you know, at this point, Kimmy, it wasn't about drinking to open up and be more sociable. It was because I was starting to develop some pretty deep-seated, dark insecurities and identity issues. Again, speaking about people who went to my school who lived in different neighborhoods and they were driving cars at 16 and I'm riding the city bus with my friends back to the hood and it's it's trash. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally, it's, it's just, it's trash. And so it's made me feel pretty badly about myself because I'm looking out the window and I'm kind of staring off in the space and contemplating my life at 15, 16 years old and thinking this is all this ever going to be for me. I'm going to be confined to the ghetto. I am going to work a dead-end job. And, you know, I'm not going to have what I see other people have. And so at that point, the pain became so unbearable for me that I just drank. And I would drink in isolation. I would literally lock myself in my room, turn on some sad music, and drink from the time I got home until the time I passed out at 11 o'clock at night to wake up the next morning and do it all over again. And how old are you during this chapter? So I'm about 16 years old. Okay. And so I will say at that point, I did start to think about my future in a little more detail and contemplate what a different future would look like for me. And so I tried to then take the initiative, or not tried, I did take the initiative to enroll in night school classes. So I would go to school during the day, I would enroll in night school classes and try to make up some of those credits. But I was still drinking and I was still hanging out with these friends and I was still getting into some trouble. In fact, I had gotten expelled twice from my high school for being caught with marijuana, selling marijuana on school grounds. And I had to complete an alternative school program. But the funny thing is, Kimmy, when I would go to that alternative school and I was away from all of my friends, I was like a straight A student. And the teacher told me, she said, you know, you are so bright, Martin. You can do so many things in this life. You just have to, you know, get your act together. And that was all well and good. But, you know, she didn't live in my shoes and she couldn't understand or maybe she could. I'm sure she could. But, you know, for me, it was it, it was basically a death sentence if I was going to be ostracized by my friends. And so if staying in school for all the classes and doing homework and kind of, you know, flying right was going to mean that my friends were not going to, you know, hang out with me or see me as a square or see me as, you know, an Oreo, as they would say back in the day, or somebody who quote unquote acts white, but they're black on the outside. You know, that was just unthinkable for me. And I was not willing to take that chance. 
Yeah. So I really hear this theme, right, of identity and belonging, right? Where your place in the world and searching for that. So as you said, this is a chapter with, you know, a lot of drinking and crime. You're getting arrested. So I want to move ahead to New Year's Eve 2003, which is the night of the accident that would change your life and many others' lives and uh, lead us to this conversation today. So it's 2003, you're 24. Where are you in your life? So at that point, I am working at a warehouse full-time and was doing very well at that. And I'm also going to Portland Community College in the evening, part-time with aspirations of becoming a nurse. And I'm living with my girlfriend in Vancouver, Washington. However, I'm also drinking daily. It's obviously New Year's Eve. The holidays are behind you. The start of a new year, you're out partying with your brother that night. And I know you speak publicly and write frequently about that night, but I do want to be compassionate in asking you to retell the story because I imagine it's never easy. But whatever you're comfortable sharing about the circumstances of that night and what you remember about the crash. Sure. So I'm I'm, I'm comfortable speaking about it. I think it's important to speak about it in as much detail as I can so people can really feel what happened that night, the horror of what happened that night, to be honest. So it was a normal day. I had gotten up out of work. I traveled from my home in Vancouver, Washington, to the warehouse in Portland that I worked at at the time. And we had gotten off work early at about 1130 because, again, the holiday was the next day. This is New Year's Eve. And I remember I, I went straight to the liquor store where I bought a fifth of gin. And then I proceeded to go to my parents' house to hang out with my twin brother because that's where he was living at the time. And so I had gotten there at about noon and we hung out. And of course, I'm drinking the alcohol as as we're hanging out. And my brother had cut my hair. And then we had made plans for later that night to attend a friend's house party, a guy we had gone to high school with. And so it's about 5, 5.30 or so. And after I had drank that entire fifth of gin by myself, I then went back to the store where I bought four 24-ounce cans of Old English beer, which is malt liquor, it's like 8.2%, very high concentration. And we come back to my parents' house and hang out some more. And then he and I had drank those beers over the next three or four hours. And then we went to another friend's house in the meantime because we didn't want to get to the party too early. So we get over there and the three of us hang out just to kill some time. And we drink, the three of us split a pint of Hennessy alcohol. And so by this point, as you can imagine, I am very intoxicated. But the sad part, Kimmy, is that this was par for the course. I mean, I literally, I did the math on it. and I literally drank and drove for the last 19 months every day. There was not a single day where I didn't drink and drive, as just scary as that sounds. And it is, and it was. And so this was very routine for us. So we get to the party. It's about 1130 or so. We see a bunch of old classmates and Of course, they're drinking and smoking and doing what young people do, I guess. We get back into my vehicle and I take my friend home without incident. 
I get back onto the freeway to take my brother home. And I noticed I began to elevate my speed to about 80 miles an hour because at this point, I'm so exhausted. I think I'd only had one meal throughout the entire day of drinking. So I'm exhausted and I'm highly intoxicated and I just want to get home and go to sleep because I knew I didn't have to work the next morning. And so I'm speeding about 80, 85 miles an hour. And this, this makes my brother nervous. And he says, hey, you know, you might want to slow down. You know, the police are out especially for tonight, because everybody's drinking and driving tonight. And I kind of shrug it off and I said, okay, yeah, whatever. I'll, I'll slow down just to keep him quiet. So I slow down and we continue to drive and I'm about to drop him off at our parents' house, literally at the end of the block where I'm going to make a left. And then he suddenly realizes that he's all out of cigarettes. So he says, hey, bro, let's, let's go up the road so I can get some cigarettes. I'm all out. And I'm thinking, great. I just want to go home and I want to go to sleep. So I'm going to get these stupid cigarettes and then I'm going to drop him off and then I'm going to speed home and just go to sleep. So we drive for about three more blocks. And then from that point, it's about two blocks up the road. There's an intersection and the mini mart, the convenience store is right beyond the intersection. So I got to go through that intersection to get to that mini mart. And I'm looking up at the light and as intoxicated as I was, I knew I was not going to make that light. As plain as day, that light was yellow and it was going to turn red long before we got there. But it didn't matter because in a split second, I had made up my mind that I'm not going to wait for it. I'm going to go right through. So I immediately punched the gas and I'm staring straight forward, almost tunnel vision and literally not seeing anything to either side of me. And before you knew it, it was just an earth shattering boom and at that point, I knew that obviously a very terrible thing had happened. And I know you initially got out of the car and didn't realize the full gravity. It was actually your brother that would start to bring things to your attention. So what do you remember about sort of the realization of what had happened in the accident? Right. So, well, here's how vain and superficial I was. When I got out of my vehicle, I didn't go check on the car that I had just hit or the people and how they were doing. I immediately began to assess the damage on my car. And I'm walking around my vehicle and I'm looking at my custom rims that are completely destroyed. And I mean, I love this car more than more than anything. It was that status symbol, right? It, it conveyed that I'm somebody, that I'm, I'm successful, even though I wasn't. But that's the image I portrayed to people or to the world. And so it was about two or three minutes into my assessment of my vehicle that my brother gets my attention and says, hey, man, he, he pointed over where the car had, had ended up because it certainly spun, I think, about 60 or 70 feet from where it was hit. And he points over there and he says, hey, man, I think I see somebody lying down on the pavement over there and it doesn't look like they're moving. So instantly, that's where my attention goes, of course. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what? have I done? And then instantly at that moment, you hear sirens coming from afar and lights. You see lights just lighting up the sky like a Christmas tree. And within seconds, you know, the policemen are on the scene and the fire department, of course, is there and they're extracting the the people from the vehicle. Uh, One person was actually ejected and that was a person who was lying on the pavement. They were ejected through the back windshield because the impact was so great and they died on impact. So I'm talking to the police officer and he's asking me, you know, had I been drinking, how much, 
Where was I coming from? Things like that. And I was, I was very coherent. I was very lucid. I knew exactly what was going on. And he informs me about two or three minutes into that interview that that person who had been lying on the pavement had perished. And so at that point, I am promptly placed under arrest and I'm put into the back of the cruiser and we head for downtown for processing. And I drive past my parents' block and I knew that I would not see that house again for about 20 years. And about five minutes into that police ride downtown, I, I'm listening to the, the police radio because they're still obviously very much communicating about this crash. And I'm reluctant to say accident. So I purposely say crash because when you make the decision to get behind the wheel after you have been drinking and driving, it's, it's, it's no longer a total accident at that point. So they're talking about this crash and they announce that the person who had been taken by ambulance to Emmanuel Hospital just blocks away had also been pronounced dead. And so I asked them from the back seat, I said, excuse me, sir. I said, did I just hear that someone else died in the crash? He said, unfortunately, yes. So as you can imagine, I mean, I cannot, I cannot adequately describe what that felt like. Yeah, I don't, I mean, you just said you can't describe it, but but what are some of, if there are some words for the emotions or the feelings or the waves, I imagine it's too much to explain. Well, I can say that utter disbelief would be scratching the surface. And I would say sheer devastation. Well, I think, and you know, I've, I've read you talk about all of the grief and the layers of grief. There are so many, right? You were grieving for them, for their families. You were also grieving for yourself and for your family. And in that crash, lots and lots of lives were impacted and devastated. Yeah. Absolutely. So the next big moment is when you read a newspaper article about the crash. Can you share that story with us? Sure. So about three days after my arrest, I'm in my cell and I'm just minding my own business. And I see the Oregonian newspaper slip underneath my door. And it, I didn't know why somebody was giving me a paper. I certainly didn't ask anybody to see a paper. But I figured there must be something in there that somebody wants me to see. So I pick it up and I begin to thumb through it. And I see my picture on the front page of the metro section. and. I began to read the article and the columnist starts to talk about the people who were killed in this crash and what their lives were like. And I come to discover that they were in recovery. They were doing quite well. They were affiliated with the Volunteers of America. They were also affiliated with MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. They would volunteer to help women get clean and sober by watching their kids so these women could attend AA meetings and NA meetings. And they were very much beloved. The community absolutely loved these, these heroes. And to think that they would be struck and killed by a drunk driver was total irony. Palpable irony is what, is, is what he called it. And in fact, 
you know, that very night that they were struck and killed by me, they were actually coming home from celebrating a clean and sober New Year's Eve party. And the one survivor of the crash had actually just proposed to his fiance, the driver, that night. And as amazing and as awe-inspiring as all of this was to read about, and even more devastating, quite frankly, to read that these people were doing such amazing things, not that it would have been less if they weren't, but you know, it certainly has an impact when you read about what they were doing, because now there's faces to these names. Now there's people and stories and lives to my victims. And so you feel it deeper in that moment. I certainly did. But it was what came at the very end of the article that actually changed my life forever. And I'll never forget the quote. And the columnist ended the article by saying, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them, end quote. Now, I'm 24 years old. And I knew based on the mandatory minimum law in the state of Oregon that I was looking at about 20 years in prison because I had two manslaughters in the first degree and each one carried a mandatory minimum of 120 months day for day. So you don't get a day off or get time or working or getting an education or anything like that. And so at that point, I'm primarily wrapped up in that and what that would mean for my life, but I couldn't dismiss what I just read. And so for the next several months, that phrase just kept popping up in my head. I would be eating and it would pop up. I would go to rec and it would pop up. I'm laying down to go to sleep and that phrase would just pop up in my brain. And so at that point, I had, you know, started to get back into my Bible and I was having Bible study with some of the guys in, in the dorm. We would do it every day from four to five. I remember we would do a prayer circle at night. And actually, there was about 30 guys in that prayer circle every night. Now, you're only allowed to have four people in a group setting in, in the jail. But the officers allowed us to do a lot more because they saw that it was something special going on in that dorm. So I would take this phrase to prayer. And I would ask for the guys to pray about it. And I would certainly pray about it. And to, for me to understand what those words were supposed to mean for my life and how I was supposed to make sense of this whole thing as it related to that phrase. And so about seven or eight months in, it finally came to me that the only way this tragedy will not remain simply a tragedy is if I carry on these people's legacies if I literally make it my life's sole focus and mission and purpose to carry on the beautiful work they were doing in helping people in addiction, in active addiction. And so I said, well, I can do that by becoming a substance abuse counselor. Now, I didn't know if that was even possible while I was incarcerated. I, you know, you don't get Pell Grant money to go to school anymore. And, and so I, I, didn't, I didn't know logistically what that would look like or how that would manifest, but I knew that I was, I was supposed to do that. And so I became committed to that in that moment. Two things. I think you said, what would the victims want you to do with your life? Which I thought was a beautiful question to ask yourself. And then I've also heard you say that you became a willing participant in your change process without knowing the clear path, but you just knew that you were willing to change and really go on this purposeful path, regardless of, of what that would look like. And, you know, we've talked obviously about growing up, about, you know, chapters of 
being in prison and coming out and trying to get your life back together and and the crash bringing you back into the prison system. So I'm curious about this big chunk, this 17 years in your life. Most curious about you beginning to fulfill this calling and this dream. But I also am curious, like most people I think are about the prison experience and life in prison. And I think you do a really beautiful job painting the humanity of prisoners and prisoners' lives. So I wonder while you have a listening audience, if there's any sort of stories or anecdotes you can share about your life in prison. Right. So let me just say that from a societal standpoint, we we assume or we think that, you know, paying your debt to society, whatever that means, is simply locking somebody away for X amount of years and then releasing them back to wherever they came from. And you atone for whatever sin you, you've committed or whatever crime you've offended society with. But for me, it's not paying the debt. That's merely the down, the down payment. Because if I had just done 17 and a half years and didn't learn anything along the way, right? Because that could have happened. I could have lifted weights and I could have played cards and played dominoes and played chess and, you know, not learned anything and gotten out and just continued on with my life as though nothing happened. How does that repay society for what I've done? I mean, I took two beautiful, amazing people who were doing, you know, tremendous work away. I took them away forever. And so that simply is not adequate enough for me to do 17 and a half years in prison. So that's merely the down payment. And so this is a lifelong bank account, if you will, that I will be making deposits in to atone for what I've done, because that's what society deserves. So I went into my sentence with that mentality, which is why I was willing to take advantage of anything and everything that was available that would get me closer to the goal of becoming a substance abuse counselor, helping those who struggle with addiction, but then also having the opportunity at some point to be able to tell my story about drinking and driving to prevent others from following in my footsteps. And thankfully, I was able to get that opportunity later in my sentence with about six years left. Um, I was able to get involved with the DUI panels that would come into the prison. But, you know, there are guys in prison, and I keep in contact with about eight to 10 of them today. Some of them will never see the light of day again, not ever. And I have met some of the most humane and caring, sensitive, altruistic people this world could see behind bars. They were 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old when they made a very, very costly mistake. But they are not those people today. And, you know, I came into the system with a lot of judgment about people locked up and thinking, of course, they need to be there. Of course, if they did this, they should never get out. Of course, that's just a no brainer. But having come face to face with these people and spending quality time with them, you come to see that these are people and these people have certainly made mistakes, but these people have a lot of value and they have so much to offer society if they were ever given a chance. I've seen people raise tens of thousands of dollars to community organizations from within the prison, from within the prison, have raised tens of thousands of dollars and donated it to women's homeless shelters, battered women's shelters, kids' organizations, and 
it's quite heartwarming to see, you know, and I just wish more people could see the humanity and just the goodness that resides behind bars. Yeah, that there's there's good men in there who made mistakes as young boys, right? Young boys and young men. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they have they have gone above and beyond to atone for those sins and have really discovered, you know, in that process who they are. And that's the same thing that I did, right? I was wandering through life aimlessly as a young man who didn't know who he was or what his identity was or what impact he would have on the world. And, you know, you're pulled in and you're pulled in many different directions when you have no sense of direction, when you don't have a blueprint, you know, by which to follow, you're subject to following anybody's blueprint for your life, you know, and that's very dangerous. But when you figure it out and you thrust everything you have into that direction and that aim, you're probably going to surprise yourself how much you can accomplish and what you can do. So you would grow deeply and change as a man spiritually and in clarity and purpose. But I want to talk about intellectually because what you were able to accomplish as far as academia and degrees and writing and publishing blogs and books is truly remarkable. So can you share with us that intellectual and academic growth and accomplishment that happened while you were an inmate? Sure. I got a job as a tutor in the education department, helping guys with their GEDs two or three months after I had arrived at the state prison. And then I found out that I could take community college courses offered at the prison uh, for 25 bucks per class. And so I did that. You could only take one class at a time. I figured, okay, if I do it enough, times, eventually they're going to have to give me a degree, right? That's that's kind of how this thing works, right? And so that's what I did. And during that time, I had met an amazing woman from a pen pal website who wasn't interested in, you know, getting into a romance with an inmate. Believe me, she is not that type, but she just wanted to brighten an inmate's day. And so she had written me a letter and we struck up a, a nice correspondence. And she was very curious as to how I plan on spending the rest of my time. At that point, I had 16 years left. And I said, well, I'd like to get a degree. I want to become a counselor. And she's one of those types of people that she's not going to just take that and just say, okay, well, you know, good luck. And I hope it works out. She spent the next four hours when we got off the phone researching how someone incarcerated can acquire a degree. So we embarked on that. She would help me financially with those courses because they were not cheap. And so I had taken a few of those. And then fast forward a couple of years, sadly, I lost my father in 2008. It was unexpected. And I had lost my mom 13 months prior to that, which is a whole separate thing about taking trips to the funeral home because you can't go to the funeral and you go to the funeral home and you're shackled and you visit the casket. It's a pretty pretty dark process, as you can imagine. But at any rate, when my father had passed away, he did leave us uh, insurance policy money and things like that. And so I, I thought, well, what better way to honor his hard work than investing in my education and, and my future? And so I was able to take classes from Indiana University, from Louisiana State University. I parlayed that into an associate's degree in 2010. 
I went on to get a bachelor's in sociology from Colorado State University, uh, Pueblo in 2013. And then I later got my master's in psychology from California Coast University in 2016. I had started writing my memoir back in 2010 because my girlfriend at the time, now my fiance, she had encouraged me to write my life story. And so I did that and eventually published that. And then someone had written me and said that, you know, they read my book and they really enjoyed it. And they thought that I wrote well. And they said, well, I have this platform called Inmates Matter 2. And we invite inmates to blog about their day-to-day life just so people can get an idea from a humanity standpoint what prison looks like for people who are doing the right things. Because you get so, you know, you see Lockhart Raw and you see these movies and these programs that only depict or largely depict the negative stuff. And so she wanted to counter that with some, some positive anecdotes. And so I started to blog. I didn't even know what a blog was at that point. She sent me material on what a blog is and what, you know, how you write a blog and what you talk about and the length and things like that. And so I got, I got pretty good at that and eventually took what I saw as the, the top 100 or so blogs that I had written about different aspects of prison life. And I published those uh, in my second book. And so writing became my, and I'll say that I never saw myself as a proficient writer. You know, I knew I was really good at art, but writing, not so much. But through this process, I certainly came to develop a passion and a love for writing, which made me want to get better at it. And so I really tried to hone those skills throughout my, my incarceration. So that's how, that's how that came about. Well, you're a beautiful writer, a really gifted, beautiful, beautiful writer. And your aforementioned pen pal girlfriend, now fiance. So (laughs) she was the, the person you were corresponding with who helped you pursue the education. Is that correct? 100%. The education, the books. I mean, she did all the back and forth with the universities and the advisors and, you know, having to pay the university. She would go on to Amazon and order my books, have them sent to the prison and the exams had to be proctored. She would. So all the behind the scenes work is attributed to her for sure. And what's her name? Her name is Robin. Robin. Okay. How long have you guys been together? Uh, 16 and a half years. And I'm not surprised that that you could court and have a woman fall in love with you with your writing. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I don't know if I'm worthy of that, but I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> so Martin, you know, this is 17 and a half years is, is a long time. You obviously have new relationships and Robin, who's pursuing you to have dreams and to take actions around them, but you know, you're losing your mom and dad. And I am curious, you know, I, you had said, I'm a really visual person and you, you had talked about visualizing your future self and how powerful that was, that it was something you could hold on to and that you would walk on the prison yard with, uh, I think you said music or, you know, I don't know if you had headphones, but sort of visualizing this future Martin. So as your pursuing your education, getting degrees, starting to share your story. What is the dream? 17 years is a long time. So what is the dream you're holding on to? Right. So the dream is to 
is to share my story and do everything I possibly can to honor my victims' lives by warning people of the dangers of drinking and driving, but not just the dangers of drinking and driving, but the ways in which we can delude ourselves into thinking that we can have a few drinks and get behind the wheel of a car and be okay. Because so many people do it. I mean, from, from bankers to doctors to lawyers to, you know, prison superintendents. I mean, across the board, we normalize this thing that is so fatal and, and can have catastrophic consequences for so many lives. And so, you know, I tell people, you know, drinking is your business, right? But drinking and driving becomes our business. And so that is the, the message that, that, that I, you know, proliferate and, and just make it a point to, to always let people know that this is a very serious thing and that you have to have a plan in place. If you're going to be out drinking, you need to have a plan in place for how you're going to get home before you do so. If you're with someone and you know they've been drinking entirely too much and they have no business driving, it's your responsibility to ensure that they don't. You have to get their keys away from them to save other people's lives. And I don't care if you have to wrestle them to the ground and take their keys, you need to do that. And they will thank you in the morning. But don't let somebody follow in the same catastrophic footsteps that I've had. Yeah. So you get super clear on your why, right? Which is mm -hmm. what would the victims, you know, right. prevent this from happening again. You get the education to be able to tell a really powerful story, both in writing and in public speaking. And you're walking on that yard, envisioning talking in front of thousands of people spreading this mm -hmm. message, and which is in fact what you're doing and what you're creating. It's something that, that you and I, I, I love anybody who is equally passionate about the power of story. I also am obsessed with words and I really appreciate you highlighting and educating me about the distinction of an accident and a crash. I think that's important language and I appreciate you sharing that. And what about the power of story with restorative justice and people, you know, coming together? Right. So as I mentioned previously in about 2015, we started having volunteers from the community come into the prison to facilitate these DUI victim impact panels. And they would bring people who, again, had lost, you know, kids, siblings, parents, grandparents to DUI drivers. And so they would tell, one of them would tell their story. And there's, there's about 50 inmates in a circle, as you can picture that, 50 inmates in a circle. And, you know, these guys come there voluntarily. They're not required to come. Some guys are in for murder. Some guys are in for, you know, sexual assault, you know. Across the board, you have them in that room. And there was one woman in particular I remember. She had held on to, you know, resentment toward the guy who killed her beautiful daughter in a crash when her daughter was only 20 years old. And the guy had never apologized. He, you know, he, he did his time and he got out and he never contacted them to even say sorry. And she was just so, you know, that had eaten at her for 20 years. And one of the guys incarcerated with me told his story. And he had so much compassion for the people he had hit and killed that day. And he looked at that woman and he said, I am so sorry that you never, that you never got that apology. But let me just say, I am so sorry. 
I will stand in for that guy who did that. And I am sorry that your daughter was lost that day. And she said, you know, she got up and, you know, her voice is, you know, cracking. And she said, I've been waiting 20 years to hear those words. And although you're not the man who killed my daughter, it feels the same. Like you're you're the surrogate stepping in and, and giving me those words that I needed to hear. And she came in to speak a few more times after that. And she said that she has felt different since that first meeting that she came in. And again, it's this, you know, restorative justice is about, you know, the kind of communal pain that we feel, right? When somebody, when somebody commits a crime against society, we feel that as a community. And because we feel that in a communal sense, the healing also has to be done in a communal sense where both offender and victim, you know, can share in that space of healing as well. Yeah, the healing has to be community collective for it to be true healing. Yeah. Exactly. And of course that that you know requires accountability, full accountability from the, the, the offender and things like that. But certainly there is, and there's a lot of evidence that supports the effectiveness of restorative justice. It drastically reduces recidivism and, and things like that. And and so I wish it was it was more prevalent in our society. Uh, yeah. but it's, it's certainly it's certainly got a lot of value. Well, you just made me cry. That's a beautiful powerful story of two people who I'm so glad were brought together through the process. Indeed. As we were talking about victims and stories and forgiveness, can you share anything about the relationship or communication with the victims of the crash? Yes. So I had prayed a year after year that the family would, at some point, that I would have an opportunity to be able to connect with the families of those who were taken and of the the man who was severely injured, permanently so, just so I could have the opportunity to show them that what I vowed to do at my sentencing all those years prior, it wasn't just lip service, that I was fully committed to this mission for the rest of my life. And I wanted it, it meant something to me or it would mean something to me if I had the opportunity to prove that to them. And so it was actually at the outset of the pandemic. It was in March of 2020 that I had gotten a letter, a random letter from a woman I had not seen. Now, because I had been on the pen pal websites for all these years, I just assumed it was another you know, person responding to my, my pen pal ad. And it was a very short, small, yellow notepad letter. And she said her name. And when I saw that last name, my heart sank because I knew that last name all too well. And she just said, hi, I'm just thinking about you and all the guys who are incarcerated there during this time. Please let me know if if there's anything I can send you, toilet paper. I mean, you can't send toilet paper, but she didn't know. She just, you know, wanted to be helpful. If I can send you toilet paper or food or money, please let me know. I've been thinking about you throughout these years, and I hope that everything is okay. And that was it. And I'm just, I'm blown away at her compassion for me. She didn't mention the crash. She didn't mention her mom. She didn't mention anything about what happened. She's just extending an olive branch and and saying, I'm here if you need me. And so, of course, I took that opportunity to write like a seven page letter explaining everything that I've done over the years, 
to honor what I said I would do and that this was just getting started for me, that I was going to be released in a couple of years. And I've got these things set up because I had made some you know, connections with the DUI victim impact panels in prison. And so I knew I'd be doing it out here as well. And so we exchanged a few letters and she was so happy to hear that, that, that I stuck to my commitment. And she said, Martin, we could not have asked more from you coming out of this. And those words, those words meant everything to me. I mean, I've been, I've been longing to hear those words. I just needed them to know that I was serious about this. And uh, that validation meant everything to me. We haven't spoken, you know, in a couple of years now. And that's, that's fine. That's okay. Because I heard what I needed to hear. But beyond that, no, I haven't had any contact with, with anyone else. But that's okay as well. Thank you for sharing that. And so you've been out nine months. You served 17 and a half years. A lot changed in the world. As you said, you lost your mom and dad, society, culture, technology. I mean, you left a different world than you re-entered. That is for sure. Heard you say that when you went in, people wore baggy jeans and you came out and everyone was in skinny jeans. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. And, 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 and let me say that I swore I would never wear foreign fitted jeans and skinny. Yeah. My, look at my closet. So, yeah. Well, I, I, know I, kinda... you're, I know you're into fashion. You've gotten really into fashion, which makes sense because when you can't express yourself, you know, for 17 years and what you wear and that you're trying to steer clear of the color blue because you wore enough blue. 100%. And it's got to be a different hue of blue than, than what I wore inside. But I, I tend to go with, I've got a pink shirt on now. I go with reds and, and greens and yeah, pretty much uh, anything that's not blue. So much change, right? I imagine you're learning, you know, tech. Well, you tell me, what what is it like to be in prison for 17 and a half years and suddenly be out in the free modern world? Right. Uh, Very daunting, to say the least, because I knew that I was going to be so far behind technologically. Thankfully, however, and, you know, a little shout out to a couple of counselors who started a very innovative program at the prison in Central Oregon, who started a program for the quote-unquote long-timers. So if you have served 15 years or more, you qualify for this program where they would have a very savvy inmate instructor who would show us as much as he could with the very limited technology that he's got to show us what an iPhone looks like and how you download an app and how to do online banking and how to operate Microsoft Word and what an Excel spreadsheet looks like. And, you know, just the very basics of this world, we had to learn from the ground up. Now, for me, I adapt fairly easily. I mean, of course, I still have my issues, you know, don't get me wrong. But if you show me something a few times, two or three times, usually I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, commit it to memory and, and I can navigate my way. Some of those poor guys who had been in 30, 35 years who were in their 60s, I I just, my heart broke for them. You know, I mean, they struggled mightily. And, um, you know, and then you kind of just learn as you go. You learn as you go. And so we were able to create resumes and things like that inside. So I left prison with a thumb drive that already had my resume on it. So I didn't have to recreate that from scratch. But it's, it's certainly been a learning curve. 
you know, I'm still amazed at the cars. And, you know, you get inside and it's just a big, giant computer, you know, and it's just, it's amazing. I mean, I'm so amazed even nine months later, I still see stuff that just blows my mind, just absolutely blows my mind. What was the first thing you did when you got out? We drove to a Sherry's restaurant because I love breakfast food and I had waffles and, and with strawberries and whipped cream. So you and Robin? Yep. We yeah. went to Sherry's and you know what? I thought, thought I was just going to just devour all of this good food that I've been deprived of for all these years. And I got halfway through it and I, I was, I was done. <laughs> I, I just could not, I could not stomach anymore. It was so much. It was so much food. And she was worried about me for the first week or so She because I wasn't eating like she thought I, I should have been. And again, your, your stomach has to adapt to real food. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot that you're trying to absorb in those first few weeks after having, you know, spent 210 months in prison. What were, have been some of your favorite first? Skydiving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, Honestly, sleeping in a bed where I could just sprawl out and have my limbs still remain on the bed. I had never had lobster, so that was really, really good. I went surfing. I don't know how to surf. I say surfing loosely. I never actually stood up. I got you were like knocked down by up. waves. You were knocked down. I was very <laughs> much knocked down by waves and took in a lot of salt water and you know. But it was fun. Like, it was fun just putting on a wetsuit and being out in the ocean. And, I, and I'm telling you, you know, as, as amazing and great and wonderful as those things have been, I've been to Vegas now and I've, you know, been to concerts. I've never been to a concert. So I went and, you know, saw Boys to Men in Baltimore and, and, and went to a couple other concerts. And all of that has been wonderful. But it all honestly pales in comparison to just waking up every day in my bed going to my kitchen to make a cup of coffee of my choosing and sitting on my couch and turning on my TV. Honestly, you know, I wouldn't wish prison on my worst enemy, but the perspective it has given me and the sheer appreciation for the simplicities of life is unparalleled. Yeah, it's a gift. I could could not have gotten that from any other experience. So I, I look at life completely, completely differently today. And I get the absolute most out of out of every day because of that. Yeah, I heard you in another interview talking about going to the beach and it was a crappy day and really windy and overcast and everyone was complaining and you were like, my feet are in the sand. There's fresh Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, there's another brief anecdote that mirrors that and that I was in the grocery store about a week after I got now. And there's a baby that's crying and the baby won't won't be quiet. And people were kind of looking at the baby and, you know, obviously everybody's wishing the baby would be quiet. But that that cry struck my ear a different way because it had dawned on me. And I hadn't thought about this. It had dawned on me that I had not heard that sound for 17 and a half years. And so I welcomed that baby's cry. It was beautiful. You know, you just don't realize, you know, what you don't have until you don't have it. What role has faith played in your journey to getting where you stand today? That's a great question. You know, God is at the center of, of, of my life and he's why I do what I do. And he, you know, put this purpose in me and 
He has kept me throughout all of those years inside, and he keeps me today. He guides me, and he is everything to me. So I would not be doing the work that I'm doing and be as successful in that regard as I am if it were not for him and, uh, you know, him kind of leaving, not kind of, but very much leading the way and opening these doors, including certainly this one. It's a very big opportunity. What role has forgiveness played in your journey? Initially, it played a very detrimental role in the fact that I had not forgiven myself. I wouldn't allow myself to forgive myself. It took about three years for me to finally get to the place where I could forgive myself. I think that's the hardest thing for a lot of us is after, you know, we pray to God for forgiveness and we believe he or whatever, you know, your God is that they or he or she has forgiven you but we have a tough time forgiving ourselves. And so I had to break free of that and know that I was only hindering the mission and the purpose that I knew God had, you know, given me if I continued to condemn myself. And so it required me freeing myself of that. And so once I was able to do that, then I was able to fully thrust myself into into this calling. What is your hope, your dream for your future? My hope and dream for my future is that my story will prevent other people from being impacted by DUI drivers, that families, that less and less families would have to suffer the tremendous heartache of having lost someone to a DUI driver. And for that matter, somebody who is uh, texting and driving, as we know that distracted drivers actually uh, have become more fatal than drunk drivers. And so just to um, know that my words are having an impact in making our community safer and making making society safer and more accountable would be my dream. And where are you in your life today? So Robin and I are very happily engaged and I am living with her and in the state of Pennsylvania. And professionally, I am working at Lions for Life, which is an organization, a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to suicide prevention, as well as substance use treatment uh, services. And so I take calls on the National Suicide Prevention Hotline and the Drug and Alcohol Helpline and several other lines every day to help people who are in a crisis and to connect people with resources. So I love my job and uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. What do you hope people take away from your story? So the first thing is that No matter how bleak or insurmountable the circumstances may appear that you are currently in, all hope is not lost. That you can use your obstacles as opportunities to learn and discover things about yourself that you otherwise would not have, to grow in ways that will surprise even yourself, and to really figure out what it is you're supposed to glean from that obstacle. Um, This is going to not only help you, but enable you to help others who are struggling. And so just to not give up on yourself, to figure out what your passion and your purpose is through that adversity so that you may be of service to others. I think that's, that's when we really get the most out of life. And secondly, I would say to not wait until you don't have something to appreciate it. You know, I talked about the small things and simplicities in life that I cherish every day. And we, we, you know, it's often that we, we wait until someone is not here before we 
show how much we cared about them or so we don't have something uh, before we appreciate it. And I would encourage people to wherever you are, whatever you're doing today, to just look around and be grateful for what you have. If it's your ability to see, if it's your ability to have a roof over your head, to be able to get in your car and drive to the grocery store and choose what you want to have for dinner. Because there are countless people who will never have those opportunities again, who haven't had them for 20 or 30 years. And so instead of fixating on what we don't have, which is so easy to do for all of us, I would just encourage people to really, really take time out every day to appreciate what you do have. Well, thank you. That is beautiful. And I certainly feel both of those things when I when I hear you speak. So we're going to end with something a little fun called Lightning Round. Are you ready? I am more than ready. All right. Favorite song? All My Life by Casey and JoJo. Best way to spend a Friday night? Uh, Watching a movie with Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Top thing on your bucket list? Um, I want to go to Paris. That's perfect because the next question was Dream City. So you get two for one. I do get two for one. A second dream city is going to be, well, let's say I want to go to the Grand Canyon. How about that? Nice. Me too. Favorite author? It's either Viktor Frankl or Barack Obama. Nice. Viktor Frankl's books come up on this podcast. I can't even tell you. I mean, it's almost eerie how many interviews Viktor Frankl has come up in. So you're in the right place. With good reason. I mean, yeah. 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 It's like the amount, you know, people who've been on this podcast have really been through a lot in life, but Viktor Frankl, maybe 30 times and 70 of them mentioned Viktor Frankl. It's really interesting. Indeed. Best piece of advice you've ever been given? That life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. So make sure you respond well. Amen. Amen. And finally, in 10 years, I hope to be. I hope to be in private practice and to be invited to speak around the world. Well, it is clear to me that you are a manifester of dreams and of positive impact in the world. So I look forward to buying my ticket to see you speak in Paris someday. <laughs> you will get a free ticket, but yes, I look forward to that as well. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. All right. It's been Thank a, you very much. It's been a pleasure and a blessing, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to All The Wiser. And as a reminder, I hope you will take a minute out of your day to help support and vote for us for the Webby Awards. Again, there's a link in the episode description where it says vote Webby, or you can head on over to Instagram at All The Wiser Podcast and the link to vote is in our bio. It takes no more than a few seconds to log in, give them your email address and cast a vote our way. So thank you to Martin and Lines for Life and for everyone who makes the time to support us in our nomination for the 2022 Webby Awards. Thanks everyone. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.